It seems to be only on occasion that we really see or notice sin's destructive power. We can easily see it, for example, in how adultery destroys marriages or families, or how abuse or rage or hurtful words destroy relationships, or how murder can destroy a life. But we don't nearly as often see the terrible results of sin in our own lives. There's plenty of small consequences, to be sure, but there's nothing earth-shattering. So we tend to be deceived or blinded by it. We don't feel the consequences for our sin. We just don't see how our pride or selfishness or lust or greed can really hurt us. Which leads us to rather easily be sucked in or enamored by them. I think that Revelation can help expose this blindness or deception in our lives today. Remember that it unveils what's going on underneath and what's going to happen because of that. And that includes just how sinister, damaging, and self-destructive sin can be. If you would, please open up a Bible with me to Revelation chapter 17. Revelation 17. The chapters we'll read today, 17 and 18, have been a long time coming. And I mean a long time. They're like a a culmination of things expected and predicted for most of the Bible. Most recently in Revelation, we read these two verses. In chapter 14, it said, An angel said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then in chapter 16, it said, The great city was split in three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And today, it's like John takes a step back and zooms in on, the, the, on Babylon's fall. But what's the deal with Babylon? Where's it from? What's it mean? Why should we care? Well, the first time we encounter Babylon is actually way back in Genesis 11, under a slightly different name, Babel. Babel, of course, is where humanity attempted an early display of power by unifying in their self-reliance and independence and building a tower that reached to heaven. In essence, they sought to build a glorious city and society without God. And God thwarted them. The next time Babylon comes into the picture... It has become a dreaded enemy of God's people. And Babylon's become the capital city of an empire, the Babylonian Empire, which ruled the known world and in its pride believed that it would never fall. Anyway, God ends up sending Babylon against his own people to conquer them and exile them as judgment for their wickedness. And Babylon does so. Viciously so. After this, the Old Testament prophets frequently prophesy that Babylon will be judged. And eventually the empire of Babylon did fall to the Persians. But then you come to the New Testament and Babylon reappears, though not in the same way. In 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says... She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. But Peter wasn't in Babylon, the Middle Eastern city. He was in Rome. And as Paul Carter explains, Peter uses the word Babylon as a symbolic way of referring to the new world culture at war with the covenant community. The city had become a spirit. And finally, we come to Revelation, where John sees visions of Babylon falling once and for all. So, who or what exactly is Babylon here in Revelation? 
I believe that John essentially uses Babylon as a code name for humanity's sinfully corrupted systems that stand opposed to God. It's society, culture, politics, economics, or religion in rebellion to God. So the sinfully corrupted systems of this world that stand opposed to God. Babylon, in essence, is this world's human-built or human-run powers. In John's day, Babylon was obviously reflected in the Roman Empire, or Rome. That doesn't mean only Rome is Babylon. No, I believe she takes many forms. Babylon may also represent a future final empire established by the Antichrist. But as Grant Osborne puts it, it still considers Rome the basis for the imagery and also embraces all the Rome-like cities of history, the repulsive immorality, idolatry, luxury, and misuse of power that characterized Rome has been reproduced many times throughout history, and we must all recognize the same depravity in our way of life today. Here in Revelation 17, Babylon is depicted as a woman of ill repute, a prostitute or harlot, which speaks to her seductive Nature. Babylon seeks to corrupt people. But there's another reason I think Babylon is pictured as a prostitute here. Because coming up very soon, in chapters 19 to 22, we meet another metaphorical woman, the Bride of Christ, which stands for the heavenly Jerusalem or the city of God. So the city of Babylon is in direct contrast to it. It's the opposite, the counterfeit of God's city. She may try to be the bride or may try to trick us into thinking she is, but she's not. Let's begin reading. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So John is invited to to see God's judgment on the great prostitute. So she's seated or enthroned on many waters. Later on, we find out that many waters stands for many peoples or nations. In Jeremiah 51, it says that Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Revelation is obviously picking up on that imagery here. Scholars believe this refers to seducing people with economic promises of power. It seems clear to me that that Babylon is characterized by actual sexual immorality as well. But right here, sex is used metaphorically to, to describe the nations being allured away from God to the point of people actually being drunk on immorality, intoxicated by evil. But if there's a foundational message of Revelation 17 and 18, it's that Babylon isn't going to last. God will bring judgment, as the angel says. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And so we see that God will judge this world's powers for their seductive sin. That's the big idea here. God will judge this world's powers for their immense seductive sin and evil. By seductive sin, I mean the way that they lead people into all kinds of sin. Babylon didn't just commit plenty of sin. They seduced others into it as well. Said, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. In verse 3, John gets his first glimpse of this woman symbolizing Babylon. It says, And he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, 
and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now, that's the same beast we met back in chapter 13, who was a composite of God's enemies. For this woman to be seated on the beast means she is propped up or empowered by the enemies of God. Verse 4 says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, the colors of royalty and wealth. She's lavish in splendor. It says she's adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. But she's also lavish in moral corruption. It says, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So, with the, the best clothes, the best jewelry, a cup of wine, she appears attractive. But then, we find out that the cup is full of abominations and impurities. Wealth coupled with immorality is abominable in God's sight. And then this woman's identity is made clear in verse 5. It says, On her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. This title given to Babylon doesn't mean that it's great in a good sense. It means it's powerful and oppressive. Impressive yet, and yet also it's great and evil. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. It's important to know she's called mother of prostitutes. So whatever Babylon or this prostitute meant to John and his original hearers, it wasn't the last Babylon. She gave birth to many others to come. So she's great in influence as well, giving birth to abominations the world over. Today, I think we can rightly say that we are walking and living and breathing in Babylon. But in case you think she doesn't sound oh so bad, look at verse 6. It says that I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. That's not as attractive. And that's who Babylon is underneath the veneer of beauty. Do your best to imagine this scene, this vision. And if it's not an impressive picture, think bigger. Because when John sees it, He is blown away. Look what it says. Second half of verse 6. It says, When I saw her, I marveled greatly. Other versions say he was greatly astonished, or he stared at her in complete amazement. This woman, Babylon, appears impressive, breathtaking, stunning, Things are not as they appear. Remember that John is not there to see her reveling in her evil and her power. He's there to see her judged. So John is shaking his head, muttering, marveling, trying to make sense of this scene. But then the angel looks over at John and shakes his head at John. (laughs) Says, the angel said to me, but the angel said, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Like, why are you marveling? Let me explain to you what's really going on here. And we all go, thank you. Please interpret this for us. It's weird. The rest of chapter 17 consists of the angel's interpretation of this scene and what it will lead to. And what we're going to see is this, that God will judge this world's powers for their seductive sin. So be wise about who holds the real power. God will judge this world's powers. So be wise about who holds the real, true power. Hint, it's not the woman or the beast. They don't deserve to be marveled at. 
Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So the earth marvels, but we, like John, don't need to. We shouldn't. The beast's apparent power is nothing but a, a counterfeit of God's true power. That, that strange-sounding phrase of was and is not and is to rise or is to come, that's referring to the, the copycat resurrection of the beast we saw in chapter 13. In some way, the, the beast will die or appear to die and then be raised to life. Remember that Christ is called the one who is and who was and who is to come. All God's enemies can do is, is parody his power, pretending to be God. You notice that little phrase in verse 8? The beast was about to rise and go where? To a throne? To glory? To success? No, he rises only to go to destruction. Again, things are not as they appear. Even miraculous power can be deceptive. And this reminds us that though the beast is fearsome and impressive, he loses. Given this beast's seemingly divine power and works, we need to be wise and discerning so as to not fall for his tricks or deception. As verse 9 says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Wisdom. Just because something or someone seems incredible doesn't mean they really are. We need wisdom to discern when politicians or political parties or systems turn beastly. They may seem like great people or great platforms to us when they aren't. We need to be wise about not being dazzled by Elon Musk's or Jeff Bezos' wealth, or even our rich neighbors, lest we fall prey to its seductive charm. We need, the same thing goes for the most successful or most beautiful, most famous, most talented people out there. We need wisdom when Sinful movements or worldviews gain massive momentum, like many of the sexual or gender ideologies of today. Just because culture is headed in a certain direction doesn't mean it's right. We need to be careful about how much we care about our own nations or heritages, because we may be choosing to love the beast, to sleep with Babylon. Who has the real power? The one who, is, who sometimes is not, or the one who always is? The one who is being judged, or the one doing the judging? The beast has heads and horns representing its power, and the angel explains more about them. It says in verse 9, This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Rome was founded on seven mountains or hills and thus personified the beast. And it would have been easy to, to buy into the lie that Rome was invincible or great. But as I said earlier, this still applies to all Babylon-like or Rome-like powers. Even for John, this had a double meaning. Continue reading says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. 
As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now, these verses have confounded people for centuries. They are very difficult to interpret. I could try to explain every last detail to you today, but I won't. But just to get a a bit of clarity of what we're talking about, there are two sets of kings listed here. Not counting the beast itself, who is is said to be an eighth king who is yet to come, likely referring to the Antichrist. But the first set of seven kings has been suggested to be seven different Roman emperors or seven global empires or that they're symbolic of any number of rulers or kingdoms. Well, the second set of ten kings seems to be vassal kings ruling under the Antichrist. But notice what matters most here. Okay, that's not really the point of what God is communicating here. Verse 11 repeats that the beast rises to destruction. In verse 12, it says that ten kings will receive power one day. But from whom? Well, God. And finally, how long will both they and the beast hold power? Did you notice it said they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast? That's not one literal hour, but it's one short time period. No matter how powerful this world's powers may seem, their reign will be brief. What will happen after that? Verse 14. They will make war on the Lamb... And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. (laughs) This is great. The the powers of this world declare war on the Lamb. But by all accounts, and we'll see more of this in chapter 19, it won't be much of a war. The beast's army isn't even able to put up a fight before the Lamb crushes them. It's like what would happen today if some tiny island nation shot a missile at the U.S. or China. The missile would get shot from the sky, and then the island would be obliterated off the map. No. We as God's people may be attacked from both the front door of persecution or the back door of compromise. But... No enemy, whether the the beast in the front or Babylon in the back, will finally stand. The Lord, the Lamb, will win. I love how this verse puts it. Like, Why does the Lamb conquer his enemies? Because of better strategy? More firepower? Bigger army? No. The Lamb conquers simply because of who he is. It says, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. He's undefeatable. A Lord of lords can't be beaten. A King of kings can't be dethroned. And this verse should be super encouraging to those of us who belong to that Lamb. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. If you're one of Jesus' called, chosen, and faithful ones, and I hope you are, then our victory is just as certain as the beast's doom. God's enemies may try to attack the Lamb by taking us down, but if God is the one who called us and chose us. He will be the one to keep us faithful until the end as well. As it says in 1 Peter 1.5, we, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So who's got the real power? God does. And we're with him. 
If you're not with him yet, you can be today. Not because of anything you've done. I mean, if it were up to us, we'd all be hopelessly on the side of God's enemies. But God sent his own son to die as the lamb, as the perfect sacrifice for sin, so that we too might die to sin and live for God. If you choose to give your heart to Christ today, it will reveal that you were chosen all along, that God had set his love on you from eternity past, waiting for you to respond. We'd love to help you if you need to talk this through or pray about it. Please reach out to us online or, or speak to the friend who brought you. Talk to Pastor Kenny who's here with you today. But the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. In verse 15, we return to the woman with a rather horrifying image. It says, And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. Wait, what's going on here? I thought they they made war on the lamb, not the prostitute. So why do the, the beast and his kings hate the world's human powers that also oppose God? Two reasons. First, Evil naturally turns in on itself and implodes. It self-destructs. As Gerald Johnson explains, God's made it that way. Birds fly in the air. Fish swim in the water. Human beings worship someone or something, and evil turns in on itself. Any city that draws its authority and strength from other than the living God ends up being eaten by that other authority and strength. And the second reason the beast and company attack Babylon, God moves them to do so. Look, in verse 16, they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire, for God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So God uses evil's own power to undermine Babylon's power. It's not just that evil turns in on itself. God causes evil to destroy itself. And do you get how comforting this should all be to us, though? God is so sovereign. No matter how powerful the world's systems may be or may become, and no matter how powerless the church or believers may seem to be at times, we know the one who holds the true power, and evil will not stand against him. Even after all this world's evil described here, God is guiding things towards his end. Osborne marvels. It says, The majesty and wisdom of God are beyond compare, and the promise we see here for beleaguered Christians everywhere is a pearl beyond price. As it says in verse 17, the the words of God will be fulfilled. It's only a matter of time. In chapter 18, we shift into a poetic chapter all about the aftermath of Babylon's fall. It reveals the the desolation of God's coming judgment, and it doubles as a dire warning to anyone who would hear. I put it this way, that God will judge this world's powers for their seductive sin, so flee sin's swift destruction. This is coming, so we should Flee our sin now. Flee sin's swift destruction. Look at verse 1 in chapter 18. It says, After this I 
saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Wow! And this glorious angel has an awe-inspiring message. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the Great. That's basically ruined. Ruined or destroyed. Destroyed. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. So the luxurious Babylon ends in desolation. From palaces and mansions to ruins and birdhouses. The once great city becomes a ghost town for demons. This is, it was once where the flourishing and popular and successful people hung out. Now it's exposed as frail and empty. Verse 3 talks about what characterizes Babylon, and it sounds an awful lot like our world today. So you can see our culture guzzling the wine of sexual immorality everywhere. In movies and books and shows and magazines and billboards and songs, online, of course. You know that the, the porn industry is a $100 billion industry a year. Like they make more films and far more money than all Hollywood films combined. Judgment is coming, my friend. And it will be entirely justified. The angel also talks about how Babylon has lived large and made lots of people very rich. As it says, from the power of her luxurious living or extravagant luxury. We might wonder here, is luxurious living sinful or wrong? Because... Our lives are pretty cushy, aren't they? We have a lot of luxury. I don't believe that the Bible says living in luxury is wrong in and of itself. But I do believe it tells us that it is very dangerous. It's so easy to start to live for wealth or greed or comfort or luxury Babylon would love to make you rich. Makes you think, doesn't it? Jesus tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 4, we get one of the most important commands, I believe, in all of Revelation, straight from the Lord. Look, it says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In other words, judgment's coming for the wicked, so get out of the way! I think we can sense God's heart here, right? He's pleading with his people, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. It's like if you stick around participating in Babylon's sins, you will be judged right alongside of her. So please leave the city behind. Is God actually telling them to physically move out of Babylon or out of wicked cities? No, I don't think so. He's telling us to be in, but not of Babylon. 
to stop being like Babylon, to, to be a distinct culture within the world's culture, to stop taking part in sin. It's to be separate, which is what it literally means to be holy. I doubt there's a single one of us who can't apply this verse in some way right now. Because there likely are ways that we are taking part in our culture's sins, whether in our words, or what we watch, or wear, or worship, or want, or whatever. Sadly, we tend to be enamored by that which is destined for destruction. As the seductions of money, sex, power, and pleasure are brought right into our homes. If we are relying on either wealth or sensuality for happiness, this warning is for us today. Second Corinthians similarly quotes God saying, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Or as 2 Timothy 2 tells us, Now flee from youthful lusts, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Flee! Run away! And why should we flee? Because otherwise, sin can and will destroy you. Sam Amadi warns that the church's most insidious enemy is perhaps the harlot of Babylon, the promise of worldly pleasure at the expense of fidelity to Christ. Satan has devoured far more professing Christian souls through sensuality and pleasure than social pressure and persecution. Now ain't that the tragic truth? And how many people do you know in recent years who have been really truly persecuted. Now, how many people do you know of who have succumbed to moral failure? Ravi Zacharias is just the latest in a long string of people brought down this way. So ask, if we're living in Babylon today, what would it mean for me to come out of her? No, you don't need to flee Ottawa and go live off the grid. But you may need to get rid of certain parts of the grid that lead you into sin. In what ways have we possibly been manipulated to pursue this world's form of power? Maybe through popularity or fame. Maybe through money. Maybe through politics. John Stark says, The power of Babylon doesn't care about conservative or progressive ideals. It will use any ideology to draw you away from Christ through the manipulation of your cravings. Where are we toying with the seductive sins of Babylon? Where have we begun to live for our paychecks or raises or investments or insurance? Where have we become obsessed with our homes or vehicles or phones or toys? Where have we compromised with sexual immorality thinking a little bit can't hurt? Have we in fact been blinded by something that could destroy us? Hear the warning in the message's language. It says, get out, my people, as fast as you can, so you don't get mixed up in her sins, so you don't get caught in her doom. Her sins stink to high heaven. Sort of like the Tower of Babel. Babylon's building another tower. And when it gets high enough, God will remember. So what do we need to leave behind today for the health and holiness of our souls? Come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people. Don't keep living as if 
judgment will never come for this world's powers. God says in verse 6, Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Makes a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. Much like here in Isaiah 47, Babylon says, I will be a queen forever. And like every Babylon that's followed, that pride plays a part in its downfall. Verse 8 says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now, if you don't think pride is deadly and dangerous, think again. And in case we forget who has all the real power, it says, For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Only God is truly mighty. And this will be proven in Babylon's near instantaneous implosion. Now, how do you imagine people will take such a swift judgment of the world's powers? Well, we're told how many will react. Extreme sorrow and grief along with fear. In the following verses, we see a series of laments from the world at Babylon's demise. They are essentially ancient funeral dirges. Songs of sorrow and mourning. Three groups of people offer up a lament, each of whom profited greatly from Babylon. The kings, or political leaders, who grew rich and famous through her, the merchants, or economic leaders, who built their markets and prospered in her, and the seafarers, or laborers, who, whose livelihoods flourished under her. First, the kings weep as they sing. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Second, the merchants pipe up. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed is gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And third, the mariners lend their voices to the chorus. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all those whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. You notice some common notes amongst those songs? The judgment is so devastating that all of them don't dare get close to the city. They all stand far off, it says, in, in fear of her torment. 
They also are all personally devastated by Babylon's fall, weeping, wailing, crying out. They all repeat, alas, alas for the great city. Woe, woe, how terrible. Each group also seems stunned at how sudden or swiftly the destruction came. Do you see that? All of them say, for in a single hour your judgment has come. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. I'm certain many people today will also be stunned as well. Because we think we're strong. We think we're mighty. We think our systems are powerful. But notice something else striking here. Are any of them lamenting over their sin? No. Grant Osborne observes that none of these groups mourns their sin, only all the luxurious living they have lost. In other words, they remain self-centered to the bitter end. There is no true sorrow for Babylon, only sorrow for all they have lost. The kings lost their lover. The merchants and seafarers lost their gravy train. And this is what judgment will entail for our world. People losing their idols, the things that they've built their lives around and lived their lives for. And for all of you with hearts set on things of this earth, take heed. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you. Never to be found again. Did you notice that the application for us in this passage isn't to lament along with the mourners? No, it's for us to hear the coming laments and then flee our sin and it's coming swift destruction because we're not there yet, but it's coming. The final application is actually to do the opposite of mourning. Look in verse 20. It continues, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. So while people of the earth grieve, both heaven and people of heaven rejoice. My friend Wyatt Graham comments here that the portrayal of all sorts of people mourning over the harlot contrasts sharply with the celebration in heaven. It forces us to ask the question, will we mourn like the mariners? Will we lament the loss of our wealth? Have we lived so long in the luxury of North American society that we have fallen prey to the harlot and her city? Those are some probing questions. But however we'd answer, there is a clear command here that I've put as our final point. God will judge this world's powers for their seductive sin, so rejoice that justice is coming. We ought to rejoice in the justice of God that is coming to earth. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now, it might seem really strange to rejoice over such obvious destruction. But did you see why God's people are told to rejoice? It says, for God has given judgment for you against her. So judgment comes partly because of God's holiness, of, heart, of course, but also partly because he loves us. His judgment here is for us, for our sake. He knows that this world has harmed us beyond what we know. He knows that many people have destroyed themselves by sin's power. And he knows that many of his own people have even been killed by evil. And so him restoring justice, true, actual justice to the earth, is something to celebrate. God's name will be victorious and vindicated, and we will be saved forever from evil. We'll see more of this next week in chapter 19. But chapter 18 ends with one final poem as an angel plays out what could be called an acted parable. 
in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon the great city be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. After Babylon falls to ruin, the sounds you normally hear in a city will cease, it says. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth. And all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints. And of all who have been slain on earth. Today we might say that the musical sounds of concerts or parades or recitals, the sounds of industry like in factories, the sounds of kitchens and restaurants preparing food, the sound of weddings and celebrations, everything will fall to darkness and silence, desolation. But while Babylon will never hear wedding happiness again, there's still a wedding coming. The wedding of the bride of the Lamb. Which provokes some final questions to ponder. Where are we finding our happiness? In things rooted in this world or in the Lamb? Do we find the great prostitute or the redeemed bride to be more beautiful? Which city is our heart oriented? This great city or the holy city? Will we mourn the fall of Babylon and the powers of this world? Or will we rejoice? And are our hearts set on that which is falling and falling or on that which stands forever? Heavenly Father, please move in our hearts. Again, convict us where we need to be convicted. Help us repent. Help us turn to you now. And help us to be able to rejoice and trust in your justice that's coming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.